Hey everyone, welcome to Techonomics this week. I'm Jake, an analyst, writer, and engineer currently working in fintech. And I'm Arun, an investor, educator, and product leader currently working in the autonomous space. And this week, we're talking to Mike Wagner, the CEO of Edgecase Research, who's building a safety standard for autonomous vehicles. We're really excited. So Mike, the first question we ask every guest is, how did you get to where you are? How did you get to be the CEO of Edgecase Research? Yeah, it's a strange, a strange story, perhaps. I'm a, I'm a native Pittsburgher. We can go all the way back to the beginning, but maybe we don't need to go that far. I'm a native Pittsburgher and I went to Carnegie Mellon University. And when I was an undergrad, I went to a seminar that was given by somebody on Red Whitaker's team. So Red Whitaker, the, the, the grandfather yep. of field robotics, who I'm sure many of our listeners here know. And he was talking about the NASA funded work that they were doing at, at CMU at the time, lunar robots and things like that. I got super interested in robotics that way and got to be a part of many interesting NASA expeditions. I've been to Antarctica testing robots. I've been to the Arctic testing robots. I spent eight months of my life in the Atacama desert of Chile testing robots. So I got really into all that kind of stuff. This was like taking you through the early 2000s. And then we saw a shift from a lot of this science fiction NASA stuff, which is still going on today. And it's, it's really amazing. But we saw a shift as the autonomy technology became more powerful, right? This was when the DARPA grand challenges were starting and there were defense and industrial applications that, that we started working on. So I went from Carnegie Mellon campus to work at the National Robotics Engineering Center, which is just off campus down the street from where my office is now. It's actually next door to me right now. No, oh, there you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And without getting into too many details, there was like a ton of interesting, but really serious robotics going on. And I started wondering, should I trust this code that I'm writing? I'm a pretty smart guy. I work hard, but there have been bugs in everything I've written. This stuff is getting pretty serious and there's some pointy ends to these robots. How do I trust this? And I... I, I actually met up with my co-founder at Edgecase, Phil Koopman, brought him in. He scared the pants off of all of us developing code. And that really led down a rabbit hole of like, wait, how do we do autonomy safely? And we started working on some research at, at CMU into robustness testing, which we touched on here. And then we realized that it, the solution wasn't purely technical. It was also economic and philosophical. And so we actually started Edgecase to say, hey, how do we really practically solve these problems? And it took a while for us to define safety, but in 2020, a UL 4600 was released and one thing led to the next. And here I am on your podcast. So actually, Mike, what, how do you describe edge case? Cause I always describe it as building safety standards for autonomous vehicles, but you always describe yourself as an insurance salesman. So I don't know which <laughs> angle you want to take. <laughs> yeah. That's a convenient way to start the conversation, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, so we, we're a startup company based in Pittsburgh. We, we need to have a growth premise to go after a big market, but our mission is about autonomy safety. So that's where your starting point makes a lot of sense. We were formed several years ago to help make uh, autonomous vehicles able to operate on the, out on the road safely. In order to do that, we had to start by defining what safety means in the autonomy context. And so that did involve helping to publish the UL 4600 standard. Then we helped customers figure out how to conform with that standard. And then we have to help customers be incentivized to make all the investments they need to be safe. And so that's where the insurance piece comes in. So I guess my question there is you talked about UL 4600, but I think we let, let's just take one step back there on the whole standards of safety in automotive. So the standard that I am most familiar with is ISO 26262, which was the original, uh, maybe it wasn't the original, but it's the current sort of standard for cars. Yep. And that seems to work very well for cars that are primarily mechanical and electrical engineering based. And as we start to get to cars that are more and more software based, now it's, it's actually almost hilarious. If you look at the ISO 26262 standard and you look at how much of it's devoted to software, it's almost round off error in the, in like the manual. And so I'm guessing that is what brings us to UL for the need for UL 4600 and like a new standard. So maybe you can talk about what that transition is like. Sure. Yeah. And you're right about 26262, which is always a great standard number to say. It's like spelling banana. Oh, yeah. Like you got to make things stop at the right time. But that standard is about what's called functional safety and functional safety is an important piece of the puzzle. So I certainly wouldn't want to come in and say, don't do the things that 26262 requires, but it's incomplete in some important ways. So one way that's a really clear way of explaining it is that every single type of risk that can be mitigated using 26262 includes some level of human controllability. 
So the whole mm-hmm. standard assumes that there's a human there to help take over if something goes wrong. And there's no category of risk there that's associated with something that's unable to be controlled in some way. Just that very basic limitation makes it necessary, but not sufficient to get to autonomous level four operations. When we start thinking about like the levels of autonomy, I think we went through this exercise when Ryan Fowler was on the show, but let's walk through that for the audience really quickly. Level one, level two, level three, level four, level five. I always feel like this is like a game show where two autonomy people try to remember which, which level is what. I was just thinking, okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> What's yeah. the official distinction here? But I, I guess level one, I think, is basically a normal car, as far as I can tell, right? You expect a human to basically intervene at any time. Level two has some driver assists, uh, like lane keep and maybe, you know, yep. ad- what we call adaptive cruise control, essentially, yep. right? Level three would be what we would consider Tesla autopilot. It, it will drive itself in a lot of situations, but still requires a human to take a wheel. Mm-hmm. Level four is full autonomy, but geo-gated within like a certain area. And then level five is the autonomous car we always dream of, right? You just, you get in, it takes you anywhere and it, it doesn't seem to require anything. I, I believe that's correct. Is there a, and, is there a like standard for how wide a, an area is on level four, like geofencing? Well, the thing I was going to add about level four is that it's actually limited in some way, limited by some operational design mm. domain. So it can be limited saying, hey, it can drive up and down the street outside my office. It can be limited saying like it'll operate on sunny days. So there's a, a couple different mm. ways to, to define that. But but the idea, I think, in level four and level five is that level four requires some oversight to say, are you allowed to operate right now? And that's important, right? Because if you imagine some system that's completely like it's got no human in it, maybe it's a delivery vehicle. You want to make sure that thing's going to come to a safe stop if. I don't know, conditions take a turn for the worse. So that's one way of thinking about the difference between four and five. And I would say your your assessment of the first three are generally accurate, right? So level one is no automation. Level two, like you said, is emergency braking or, or lane tracking. Mm-hmm. Level three might be lane changing where there's some level of software influence that the humans got to keep to keep their eyes on. But it actually could like cause some kind of problem if you lane change at the wrong time or if you lane change to the wrong lane or something like that, like that's a safety issue. And then, yeah, level level four is hands off. I'm expected to not have to pay attention. One way that that we like to think about it really is like who's responsible for safety at any at any time. The The challenge of level three is that it's not always clear who's responsible, the software driver or the human driver. Level four, it starts to get a lot clearer. But really, we think that's the most important distinction. If there's an accident that occurs in that level, who's responsible for that accident? If you, if you look at it in level one, clearly the human would be responsible. What happens after level one? Who's responsible at that point? And that seems, this seems is a non-technical question, question. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is a non-tech, it's a legal question, right? So we're starting yeah. to see the answer to that through, through case law. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that in some cases we're seeing, and again, it's very early. If we go back and listen to this years in the future, we're going to see all the limitations of what we're going to be able to say here, but we're seeing that generally the, the human is responsible. One one example that I think I, I heard about was if a vehicle, if a personal vehicle is, it, it, it has some kind of traffic violation, then the human is going to get ticketed, not the, the manufacturer of that that vehicle. We I think we saw that case with a safety driver even for a level four test vehicle. A lot of this is TBD, to be clear, and it's important because you mentioned at the at the top here that Edgecase is is participating in the world of insurance. That's important when it comes to claims adjudication and and mm-hmm. that. And so when you we start stepping through these levels of autonomy, it, it seems like Edgecase would take everything beyond level one. So like level two, level three, level four, level five is where Edgecase would have a hand in certifying a system or ultimately insuring a system. How does edge cases, I don't know, either products or how you approach the problem change as you go through those levels or does it change? Sure. I guess the right way to answer that question is to look at what our business units do, how we commercialize our risk assessment technology. The first way we do that uh, is in the world of defense with our business unit, edge case defense. And I'll just touch on that for a minute there so that we can understand the whole landscape. In that market, there's a regulatory requirement for any new system that the Department of Defense is acquiring to go through and do a safety assessment. So Edgecase Defense provides those safety assessments using our, our software platform, using our expertise. And so 
we sell those assessments basically at scale. In the commercial auto side, that's where we have edge case risk management, which is our insurance arm. And the reason why we're serving the commercial AV market in that way is that we really think the biggest opportunity is there because insurance premiums are going to grow pretty substantially as the AV market takes off as they go into commercial operation. And that's important for us, not only as a startup to, to grow, but it, it's also important because we want to be able to say that we'll help um, these big operations price their risk accurately. Because if you don't do that, then, then you're spending a lot of money that you don't have to on the, on the cost of your operations. And so we think we have the right kind of intelligence to be able to look at what residual risk really is and then, and then price it. I think that's, that's a, that's the ultimate answer to your question is how do we, how do we get this into, into customers' hands? How do we actually sell this? It's through, it's through those kind of channels. So in an insurance engagement, we do a couple of different things. We not only offer accurate pricing, but we also offer risk engineering services to our customers so that they can help meet their, their safety goals. So then I guess getting all the way back to, you know, what levels do we serve? It really comes down to what levels those two business units serve. And I think on the insurance side, the big question and the big, the big problem that we're going to solve for this market to grow is what do insurance companies do with autonomous vehicles? What do they do with commercial auto policies for software that's driving a vehicle? And the first couple of market segments that are really going to autonomous operations, maybe they're doing testing right now, pre-autonomous operations is trucking. And mm -hmm. so we're looking mostly at level four trucking, but the underlying, and I think Arun, this is what you're getting at the underlying approaches that we, that we are developing, the technology we're developing, yep. it really applies anytime the software is in charge of safety. Mm -hmm. I see. So you don't see this because, you know, in my head, I always joke that level one, two, and three, they can stay the same. But level four and five, they should be called something else. They shouldn't be on this continuum. There should be this, because there is a huge gap between three and four. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I always say it should be one, two, three, and then like Z and X or whatever you yeah, want to yeah, call right, it, right? right. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, like they, they shouldn't be on the same scale, but it's interesting because I always, I, I, from the outside, you're always looking at a company like Edge Case and you think, especially when you work in the industry, you think, oh, that's how it would work, right? There'd be this huge gap in how you do things between three, four, and five. And it turns out there really isn't from what you're saying, which I find really interesting. But does the level of data that you have to process change at least between three, four, and five, like the volume? Oh, yeah, actually, before I get to that answer, yeah, my way of, inter of, of, of describing what you said is that, yeah, there's different responsibilities, different safety requirements that software has to meet in these different levels of operation, right? And even level one, there's software involved. Like you got to make sure that the, the brake engages when the, when the pedal is pressed. You got to make sure the throttle doesn't open up and and uh, cause some kind of unintended acceleration event. There, there are some low-level software requirements. And you look and you say, what is required to build a safety case? So now I'm introducing a new term we could talk about if you want. What do you, what yep. do you need to build a safety case for that brake controller? And that's a, I guess you can't see my hands waving in the podcast, but that's a, that's a limited <laughs> set of data and other kinds of non-statistical evidence that, that you need to back up that safety case. And then if you take it all the way up to the complexity of a level four system, and you're looking at a deep neural network that's doing pedestrian detection and a fusion system and planning control, that's going to require a lot of both non-statistical evidence, but also a lot of validation data. So have you trained that neural network to operate in its operational design domain? And that takes a lot of data. And really the trick is how do you split it between simulation data and real world data effectively? You touched on a couple things. First of all, the idea of a safety case and the it seems like that would certainly grow between between your autonomy levels, right? And certainly level five having a very large safety case because you're essentially trusting that, that vehicle to drive almost anywhere under right. any conditions. The the other thing is like the role of simulation in 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 these vehicles, which I think is paramount. And I don't think it's talked about enough because you talk about hand waving just now. I don't think anyone hand waves more than people who say, we simulated it and we know it works. And and the real truth is that that is that is, it's not a great answer in and of itself because there's, there's a few things I think people forget. First of all, how do you know your simulation represents the real world? That, that's a very important question. I always say that's the fundamental problem of autonomy is that I drive in the real world. I simulate, or actually it's the other way. I simulate, I drive, then drive in the real world. And then I've got to be able to tie those two things back together. I, I mean, the term I use for it, and I think we used for it at Aurora and ATG was always basically the, the sim to real world coefficient. Like how well does simulation actually represent the real world? And it is 
a little shocking when you talk about this in autonomy circles, how little people kind of like think about this problem. Or, or maybe, or maybe how little they want to talk about the problem because they <laughs> yeah, fair, I, I fair, fair. think a lot about it, <laughs> but there's, there's, there's a hard, it, it's hard to get an answer. You're totally right. Yeah. And I'd love to get your take on this because like I say, this is one of the most important things because increasingly we're going to almost every form of hardware goes to simulation. You look at like semiconductors. Before, you used to have to, like, you built them by trial and error, essentially. Now you build them all in software and essentially hit print. I'm sure somebody in the semiconductor industry will say it's more complicated than hitting print, but you get the idea, right? Yeah, that's right. A couple billion uh, dollars later, print. Yeah. But increasingly, you start looking at Thomas vehicles, you look at operations costs, you look at how those things yeah. scale. And what you find is that really, in order to make a, an autonomous company work, an autonomy, any kind of autonomy company, you really have to simulate quite a right. bit. And how, how, how does this, how does this problem fit together for, for you guys at edge case? What's your, what's your take? Yeah. So first let me just spend a second on the concept of a safety case, because this is part sure. of our, our answer. A safety case is actually a fairly specific term. A safety case is a document that consists of different claims, statements I'm trying to convince you of, right? I'm, I'm trying to persuade you are true. And that's decomposed into a hierarchy of, of subclaims through a bunch of arguments. So I, I'm arguing that the vehicle is safe for its intended operation because it does X, Y, Z, it detects pedestrians and stops before it hits them. There's, there's a whole set of claims that are linked together by these arguments and uh, they're backed up by evidence. So a couple things I want to say, the first thing is that the point of a safety case is not a mathematical or formal proof. The point of a safety case is rhetorical. It's to convince the stakeholders of the truth of the top level claim that, that objective sets how you define all the evidence that you need. Okay. Now in our safety case framework, the end loop safety case framework that comes in our product, there's three different categories of, of claims. The first one is all about how you're managing your organization. We call it live it right. So are you tracking potential safety hazards? Are you bringing them to resolution? This is, this is a lot of stuff from the aviation industry about safety management systems and safety culture and planning. None of that is based on simulation, but it's really important because if you don't have all that in place, you're guaranteed that your simulation is going to be wonky in some way. It's going to be headed in the wrong direction or you're not going to trust it. Um, is that mostly like procedural process and like measurement of like your, your company process basically? Right. So, you know, are okay. you finding incidents and are you analyzing them? Yeah, and what's your mitigation? Them? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Okay. Again, the, the, the FAA has fantastic guidelines on how to set up a safety management system. I, I yeah. that the second sort of subtree of claims we call engineer it right or build it right. And that's where you're doing a lot of simulation, both for verifying that certain safety requirements hold. So I've built a thing. Does it meet its spec? I'm going to show you in simulation that it meets its spec. That can be like a minimal amount of simulation in some cases. But the other thing you need simulation for is to validate that your risk budget is correct, right? And in that case, you need a ton of simulation probably. Because some of your risk bu budget is allocated to things like deep learning, object detection that, that require a lot of data to validate. Okay. So the way we like to walk our customers through it is first you run a ton of simulation to show that your risk budget holds in simulation. Now, then there's the final bit of the safety case that says, okay, you've done all that work. You have this statistical model. Does it hold in the real world? We call it operate it right. And if you're just looking at the occurrence of some kind of collision, then you're not going to get a lot of data on the accuracy of your risk budget because your risk budget goes down to a detailed technical level. What we do with, with Enloop, with the, with the software capabilities, is we look for what are called safety performance indicators in operation. So an example there would be, hey, we thought that on this route, our pedestrian detector would be 99% accurate and it would never fail at the same time as the LIDAR-based object detector. Our SPIs, our safety performance indicators, might indicate that in the real world, you have a common mode of failure, or in the real world, you have a triggering condition scenario where the object detector is less accurate than you expect. Maybe you didn't have a collision. Maybe you didn't even almost hit somebody. You have a, a, a violation of that safety performance indicator, and that's really that's indicating in a way the, the, the predictiveness of the simulation from a safety case perspective. And that's why it all has to tie back to the safety case because you can use sim for a lot of different things. But what we're saying is, hey, if you simulate and you see the risk budget, you're going to see that same risk budget out in the real world. Or maybe you have a problem in the way you're operating. 
Maybe you're operating in a different ODD operational design domain, or maybe there's a flaw in your simulator. It can be hard to tell which one's the case, but, but that's what we want to see from a safety case out of a sim. So then how do you, so you said your simulator, which is very interesting here. Oh, that's the uh, customer simulator. Sorry, let me be Correct, correct. No, no, yeah. no, no. I, I, I know, I know. But not, every, not all simulators are created equal, right? Especially when they're customer simulators. So right. how, do you, how do you adjust across different simulation stacks and different autonomy stacks as well? So actually, let me start with the autonomy stacks because, yes, the software and the detailed design is going to be different. But a lot of the, a lot of the claims that we're making are about common autonomy functions that everybody's stack has. You know, I like to joke that there are, om- there are only so many robotics professors in the world, and really everybody's learned the same way of, of building an autonomous vehicle. They have slightly different approaches, but at a, at a high level of functional architecture, it's, it's really quite similar. So we take advantage of that and we define a lot of these safety performance indicators based on centrifusion and whatnot. Um, and everybody has to trace how you actually collect data to evaluate these different safety performance indicators to specific functions in their system or fields in a database of, of test results. And really that's the answer to the question about how we integrate with different SIMs too, is we say, hey, your SIM is looking at, we, we, we request data, we request different scenarios, and we get these SPI data sets back using some kind of database interface. So, you know, we don't really care so much about how the rendering engine works. If it doesn't work, we'll see a distinction in the safety metrics that, that we'll pick up statistically. It's super interesting. But then I, I guess one other question, I guess maybe a bit of a precursor to that is, do you have any prerequisites for that people have to meet before you can apply that process? So the first one I'm thinking of, and maybe there's others, is determinism in the, and it's like Ross, for instance, is not deterministic. That would, that would not work, but you're the expert. So maybe you can explain it to us. Anything else besides yeah. that are in the prerequisites file? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That's a good question. We need to make sure that there, there's, there's, there's a, there are claims in the safety case that have to do with the validity of the test results. And so if you have the possibility for, I'll just call it more generally a defect in the simulator to give me some kind of unrealistic risk estimate, then you should have an argument about how you've mitigated all those risks. And there will probably be some unmitigated risks because a sim is a complicated piece of software. So you hope that those, those problems come out in the statistical analysis that I was just talking about. But you need to have a sort of baseline, almost verification argument to say, my data are clean, my sim runs the way I expect. These, these are generally defined in what's called a tool qualification requirement. So a standard like 26262 or UL4600 will say, if you're going to use a sim for building a safety case, you need to have these kind of attributes verified. And, and one of them generally would be determinism so that you can, you can trust the results that you're getting. It's interesting too, because uh, I feel like that has been, it's actually one of the biggest costs I think for, for an autonomy company is they have to adopt some sort of deterministic stack. And there is no equivalent of Ross that is deterministic, at least yet. There are some things that are early. Is that the case to do most of your customers, if you can comment, come, come to you with like their own autonomy stack in play, or are they using something else? Oh, you mean like for the underlying infrastructure? Yeah, like the Ross, what would consider to be the Ross layer? Ross, in most... Yeah, yeah, it, right, Ross equivalents. I think at this point, there is starting to be some consistency. There are some, uh, there's been, a, there's been a, a pattern of all these AV companies starting out with their own homegrown stuff. I come out of Carnegie Mellon myself. I'm even familiar with the provenance of some of those things. But over time, I think the, the space has started to recognize the value of, of buying versus building everything. And so we are starting to see a lot more commonality in, in what some of the, the stack infrastructure and, and some of the SIM infrastructure as well. And, and can we maybe veer slightly away from maybe the, the topic of stack and, and maybe some of the technical, technical aspects and talk about like the life cycle of the safety case and maybe like an insurance claim or or in some sort of like litigation, like I'm curious as to how those are currently being used. We talked about the example prior of, of the, the driver getting ticketed versus the car, but I'm, I'm just curious as to practically what the, the real world use case looks like. Sure. I guess we can like thin those into now, next and later, right? So now what safety cases are used for primarily is developing the autonomous driver to an acceptable level of safety. So what I mean by that is a, a, a developing organization, and there's a bunch of different teams, right, within those orgs. There's the software developers themselves, 
there's usually this overworked and an underwater safety engineering team, yeah. the validation <laughs> team, everybody's overworked, right? But the safety guys often come to us say, we're so lonely. We need, we need somebody to be our friend. They're the validation group. There's the operation group, et cetera. Mm. So the safety case is really the way that all those different groups can understand kind of what their milestone should look like. I see. Because there's a there's an anti pattern. I mean, uh, we're a safety company. We 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 are advancing safety engineering for autonomy. But I can tell you some things that that safety engineering often does poorly, which is a developer a, a development group will come to a set of safety experts and ask them, okay, what should we need? What should we do? And the safety experts will be like, it's your job to build it, but this is what we're getting at. And then the the developers will look for like an an objective function to like train towards or to work towards. And they'll often not get it because the safety engineers often will say, if you do it that way, there's this problem. It's like a never ending list yeah. of problems sometimes. Right. So a safety case. It's always a trade off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some mm -hmm. of it's hard because I mean, the, the, the goal of a safety group within an organization is often to say, whoa, stop. Right. And the management mm -hmm. needs to make a trade off between whoa, stop and let's go as fast as we can. Right. A ship in port is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. So, yeah. so we have to think about what the safety <laughs> is for. And, 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 and part of the safety case is saying, this is what the safety objectives are. You can all start marching toward. And practically, the prioritization of live it right and build it right and operate it right is different for different companies. If I could wave a magic wand and say where I think everyone should start, it would be live it right. Right. Build your safety team, have a safety management process mm -hmm. in place. Be really, really clear about all this stuff. But just like this conversation, these these teams are very technical. And so there's a lot of questions about like, how do we like handle deep learning? How do we validate mm. the object detector? So sometimes we have to start there. But but that's uh, I'll pause there because there's next and later still. But but right now, that's what safety cases are used for is to set all of these plans in place. Got it. Internal milestones. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, on the, the topic of deep learning is one that, again, another one that's like near and dear to my heart as to how do you verify the behavior of neural networks and you're smiling now because I think, because I this think is the question I, that, yeah, if this yeah. were a sales call, right. And you guys were like, Hey, we want to have a safety case for our new co or something. You'd probably yeah. ask that question. I can yeah. give you the answer that my sales team gives. <laughs> <laughs> but because it's, 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 it's a, it's a critical point. We all yeah. need to think about it. And oh, yeah. The, the observability of the decisions that deep that deep learning networks make has always been the one of those fundamental questions, right? They're they're essentially just the operations on probabilities and a decision gets made and it's very hard to look back and say, hey, this is why and how. Okay, so I'll, I'll take the sales team answer because any answer is better than what I've heard to date. <laughs> yeah, well, the good news is that it's actually somewhat technical for a sales team answer. So what we would say, first of all, is that you got to be clear about what you're what your safety case says. So your safety case is saying two things. The first one is that that, like, let's take an object detector just for an example, right? So a pedestrian detection, a deep neural network that does pedestrian detection. You need, you need to make a couple of claims. The first one is that the system has been implemented at a suitable level of integrity. And that's a term of art that means that like, I've built this thing to be suitable, to be safety critical, right? The software doesn't have bugs in it. The hardware doesn't have bugs in it. And what that means for a convolutional neural network is like this whole stack of linear algebra is correct, right? And, 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 but, and, and, and that almost like for the machine learning folks, like the, the Carnegie Mellon folks, I don't really care about that problem, but it is a super important problem because if you look at ACLD, ACLD microprocessors for safety critical applications, there's a lot of work that goes into doing that. So we don't want to like gloss over it. We need that neural network hardware and software stack to be, to be ACL whatever is, is appropriate for the situation. So that's thing number one. Thing number two is that then your next question is, is it trained correctly, right? Is it going to behave properly? And that's a validation question. There's no mm -hmm. requirement to actually verify there other than it should detect all of us all the time, right? Which is impossible to verify. And so that's where the statistics come in. There's an interplay between your ODD definition and your, your validation data where you're saying, I'm building a statistical argument that this pedestrian detector is suitable on this route. And that's where, that's where we get into all the stuff I talked about a few minutes ago about validating your risk model in SIM and then in, in the real world. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, isn't it like basically you're, it's a symbiotic relationship between your, your model and testing via simulation, right? I'm assuming the more amount of simulation data you have, you basically drive the probability to more confidence, right? Hopefully, so like, if it works. I yeah, mean, the safety yeah, guy's going to say what it actually does. But yeah, that's the goal. <laughs> 
Yeah, but then again, it's like now you have a, a double stack of of dependencies where you need to make sure that each component in that stack will function as intended. Yep. And so if you don't have that, so yeah, it, it's almost like verification of each one of those subcomponents, and then also an acceptance test of all of those components working together is going to be important for that validation step, right? Yep. That's right. That's right. And one thing you can do, and this is where we start to get into some of our like project uh, engagement definition, is I said you had to make sure all the linear algebra works correctly. You can right. handle that later. Like you can have a, a a team working on that while you work on the validation stuff, and there'll be some residual risk because maybe there's a bug in your in in what you're using to validate. So it's not simple, but like it's important to separate those two concerns because they're very different objectives. Yeah, it's super interesting because I I was I was half expecting here. Oh, what we can do is you know we're looking into trying to get a closed form equation from from a from 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 these neural networks, right? And then what we're gonna. I, yeah, that's where they're going. And, and, and I think the problem is, so this is the difference between like machine learning and robotics. Okay. The machine learning yeah. guys will, will say <laughs> that's what we want to do. But the robotics guys are like, we know autonomy is like always uncertain. The reason why we're using your deep neural networks, because we don't know how the hell to set up requirements for this task. So we're, we're, we're throwing data at it to learn what we need to learn. And by net, by like necessity, we're giving up some control over the design process. As a result, then we have to fall back on these validation, statistical validation approaches. Mm -hmm. And then we have to resolve all the other sources of risk. Like I said, like maybe there's a bug in your TensorFlow code or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny. Cause I feel like there's a very low level sort of way, low levels, uh, maybe not the, the term I should use, but I say low level to mean like code level, right? Yeah, like yeah, sort yeah. of way implementation of like, level. Yeah. Right. Almost like unit tests, things like yep. that, that basically validate your code there's a sort of like high level, like requirement validation, but there's still this piece in the middle, you know, that, that runs and it runs in a very sort of obtuse way. And I hope that we see, I saw some work come out of Cornell on this, this ability of basically being able to reduce a, a neural network down to, to basically a closed form equation. And then you can basically do a parameter sweep and validate. Now the range of that parameter sweep and how much compute power you need to do it, that those are questions that I agree need to get answered, but no, it's, it's, it's super interesting, but the, the, the promising thing I hear is that this is not a blocker in your eyes. Like we can, we can, we can still validate a vehicle without having to invent a new technique to validate a network with some crazy mathematics. It's, it's a trade-off. Look, I, I might get in a little bit of trouble for saying this, but, but I'm saying it from a conversational and explanatory perspective. If you had, if you had a purely black box and you had no design information, no analytical kind of evidence that you could generate, you can still drive the thing around for a really, really long time and then incrementally like gain confidence in it. That's, that's a philosophically yeah. valid approach to a safety. Mm -hmm. It's just, nobody wants to do that because that requires a, a ton of money, right? So it's really about where we split off the parts that are analytically provable and the parts that aren't. And so like I was in, I, I love to think back to these pre-pandemic conferences where people are getting together and talking in really meaningful ways. There was a there is a panel or, or some kind of group. I think it was at a IEEE conference. I'm sorry, I'm not remembering the exact venue, but Jeff Schneider, who is from Carnegie Mellon, but also from at the time Uber, oh, yeah. was, was yep. talking about end-to-end -end deep learning. And Jack Wiest was talking about responsibility, sensitive safety from Mobileye. And I tried to set both of them up in conflict with each other because Jack's stuff was all about like provable safety checkers. And Jeff's stuff was all about how like in order to optimize, you got to put deep learning algorithms around everything. And it's a really healthy discussion because where you draw that boundary between which of those approaches you use, it has a lot of impact. There's an optimization function there. That's hard to, hard to know right now. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's super interesting. And I think that as we progress, I'm curious to see what, what, what we do here, because it is on the one hand, we have validation methods that theoretically work. And then we have, you know, we have this area that we can't validate. So we can validate from a systems level. We can validate it from a code level, but we can't validate it from, there's a portion of the code, like from a decision-making level, I guess is the, is the way to sort yeah. of maybe phrase that. But the, cause I've always heard that this is one of the, this is one of the weaknesses of a deep learned only approach, but it, it seems like what you're saying is that this is not the case. It depends on what you're trying. So it's, it, the trade-off I'm trying to make is between verification and validation. Okay. So what mm -hmm. we often suggest, and, and I still want to get back to the next and later uses of the safety case, but, but, sure. but we're like deep within the, what you do with this now. And I think it's technically interesting. So thanks for letting me. Absolutely dive into this. Is. 
you know, we don't design the architectures for our customers. We provide feedback, but one bit of feedback that we do provide pretty consistently is that you want to use formal methods for as many different or something like formal methods for as many different functions in your autonomy stack as possible. If, if I can take a minute to step through what I mean by that, it might be useful. So you can imagine like a very, very simple pipeline where you start at the left with a perception algorithm, and then we'll just lump fusion and everything into that maybe. And then it goes to a planner, right? Sense plan act, right? It goes to a planner, then a, then a controller. So we can, we can zoom in on the planning component. And again, I come from the world of robotics. I know it's all more complicated, but we don't want to spend the next five hours on all these details. But, but if you look at the planner, what the planner is basically doing is saying, given a world model, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to choose a course of actions to then go and execute. Okay. A lot of that is a, a purely mathematical operation. It's a search, a search algorithm across some space, right? For some, for some activity that meets safety constraints. Now you can use deep learning to, to do that task. But if I momentarily stipulate that the world model is good enough, it's often really easy to check that the plan that my planner chooses is safe or not. This is like what Mobilize is saying around RSS. They're saying, we want to make sure we stay in our lane. We keep a good distance from the car in front of us. We don't do anything stupid. Again, very broadly speaking, you can do those checks with like very, very simple code that can be formally checked, formally proven, maybe even synthesized using formal methods. Now, what that's doing is it's stipulating that the world model is accurate, right? Which is a pretty heavy assumption. But this is, again, why a safety case is so useful, because you take that assumption, you say, okay, this is something I need to argue about next. But look, if I can say for a minute that my world modeling stuff is correct, now I, now I know my plan is, is safe, right? And so I've just done all that without any deep learning. If I got to use deep learning for that, then it gets really complicated. But instead, I'm using like some sort of ACLD code generation approach to build this little checker. Now, that's why I'm using the deep learning pedestrian detection function as an example, because what we want to see or what we would suggest that customers do to get to get to market safely is they take all of this statistical validation responsibility and put it on those perception algorithms. And, and one of the reasons for that is because there's no other way that anybody knows to, to check it. Like you can't look at the sensor readings and build like a sanity checker for the sensor readings. But the other thing is that you can do a lot of that validation open loop. So now we can get briefly to like safety on the road during testing. You can do data collection and you can, you can analyze the accuracy and the safety of that object detection algorithm to your heart's content without ever putting it in control of the vehicle. And I think that's a scalable way to start collecting evidence there. What about the idea that we, we just, we don't know if this will work, but we know it'll fail elegantly. Our, our, I don't know, I don't know what you call it. I want to call it a safety envelope, but that is a very different connotation. But we have these core behaviors that we know that when our car fails, it'll come to a safe stop. Right. It will, you know, whatever. It reaches, there's an uncertainty threshold that just triggers a, a safe stop, safe pullover, whatever you want to call it. Minimal risk validate condition that, is what uh, NHTSA often calls it. Yeah. Yeah. My, my question is, is there, is there a place for that? How do you validate those sort of like minimal risk conditions, sort of like whether you can reach those and how does, how does all that work? How does that fit yeah, in all this? Yeah. That's, that's a great question because I think one, one thing that's difficult for developers to understand about safety engineering is that it's, it's not usually about the way the system works. It's about what happens when it fails and, and the sort of starting point for all of us, which by the way, can lead to very interesting ways of thinking about daily life as you interact with the world around you <laughs> is mostly what's going to happen when this breaks or when this doesn't do what I expect. So yeah, and we can talk about the psychology of, of all that maybe later if you want, but so this is a super important question. Usually the analysis, usually the claims in the safety case aren't about, I don't know, the, the optimal plan, but if it's unsafe, then this is what happens, right? And so this gets to your minimal risk condition. From an architectural standpoint, you can often use a lot of provable code to execute that minimal risk maneuver. You can, you can, you get, I've seen examples of arguments that say, hey, the mission time of this is going to be very small. So this kind of sensing method is going to be appropriate. I don't think we have time to get into all the details about that. But once you say you want to, you want to come to a stop, often you can, you can execute that using high integrity code. But the more interesting thing is not how you build the architecture, but how you do the hazard analysis 
to know what that minimal risk maneuver should be. Because I just said, come to a stop. And you might say, that's not a safe thing to do, right? And that's yeah, what analysis is about. Or... Yeah, you need to know you need to know what the real hazard is and you need to know what the hazards are in trying to say pull over to the side of the road. And this is really interesting stuff. This is where the safety engineers shine because they'll tell you all kinds of stuff that that you might have to worry about and they'll give you a good risk model, right? A good set of hazards that you need to track as you're as you're coming up with this this strategy. We call it uh, process-wise in, in, in software that, that I, it, it's my world, we call it the pre-mortem that we've run through before projects go out. It is literally a running list of everything that could go wrong in our mitigation for each one of those things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at, you know, we talked about standards at the outset, 26262 is the one that automotive uses. There's a, a military standard, a mil standard 82E, which has been around for a long time. That's really what it's about, is going mm -hmm. through, you have a, you see these programs, they have giant Excel documents, they run out of the number of lines you can store in an Excel file with all these different things to look out for and, and how they've been mitigated or not. You know, and, and we're, as we get deeper into the discussion, there's something I, I think I can't really let you leave before we talk about it. So I want to kind of bring it up now, yeah. which is we, what does the, what's the current state of, of autonomy and safety and like all these other things. Mm. And really like, you know, it's funny, we were on a panel together not too long ago and, and a question came up to you and. I still remember the answer, which was that you had said, um, you know, Europe seemingly is ahead on these standards and, and things like that. We're seemingly a little behind here, but if we just, if we back up and even we, we just even remove like the geo differences and things like that. And you had to say like the, the state of these systems, whether they're safe or not, or whether we can certify them, whether we can insure them, what, what does, what are your thoughts? What do, how do we get to the place where we know these, these, these cars are safe? Yeah, there's a couple different questions that you actually ask there. One is, what is the state of the regulatory and 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 standards landscape? And and that when I when I was saying that Europe is ahead, that's definitely what I mean. I mean, they're looking at specific regulations for level four operations, and of course, they require homologation. So a system before it goes out on the road has to be approved for that for that use, and that's a pretty heavy requirement that we don't have in the U.S. In the U.S., there's licensing, and but simply speaking, like you put you put something out on the road and then you have a liability that 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 you're maybe taking on. So it's a different if it, it's a different approach and and the fact that you need to pre-check things in Europe means that there's always going to be more standards activity there because they have to define those checks. Uh, hang on, uh, just yeah. so does that mean that you're not allowed to put the car on the road unless it meets some it, it's 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 verified even if the standard doesn't exist and the standard doesn't exist you can't put it on the road is that what I take that to mean? Right. It's more complicated than this, but the distinction between the U.S. and Europe is that in Europe, before you start operating, you need to get permission. And in the U.S., it's it's always shades of gray. In the U.S., you do. It has to be a street legal vehicle, et cetera. But if you look at all the discussions around FMVSS, that's pretty low level stuff compared to, you know, what's what's happening in the autonomy in the U.S., if you put something unsafe out on the road, well, then then you're going to get dinged because you have this liability that you're taking on. So it's more complicated than that for sure. But, yeah, but yeah. that's why that's what drives standards in Europe, because the regulators will say, OK, people want to start operating these vehicles. What do we do to check? And, and that's that's really where a lot of those stakeholders are. OK, so that covers like the U.S. EU differential, but we still have sort of like that broader question of where where are we and how do we yeah. actually get to yeah, right. the, the, the golden state? And I don't mean California when I say that, but yeah. <laughs> the glorious come one, come all. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, come to Pittsburgh. We're the center of this universe. But yeah, that was your second question, I think, which is, you know, where, where does the tech stand? I think I think this is this is my opinion, because really, I don't know. What is, what is the saying? In God we trust, all else bring data. I mean, it really, yeah. it remains to be seen. But I think indications of like early work towards building evidence for these safety cases show that a lot, like the secret to success is going to be ODD, operational design definition, definition. If you have a system that is smart about where it's operating, but also how it's operating, and I'm I'm being a little bit coy because I, I don't want to pick a winner in this race, but if you have a way to solve the really hard problems about like knowing when the ODD goes south unexpectedly, knowing when something weird happens, that's going to get you a long way because those heavy tail events are challenging to, to mitigate or the risks from those are challenging to, mit to mitigate using automation. So if you have humans in the loop in kind of the right way, that's often a really, really good strategy.
It's interesting that you bring up long tail events because people frequently ask me and they ask everyone in the space, like, how, how close are we? Like, how do these cars drive? And the answer is they drive great until they don't. Yeah, right. Uh, right. Yeah. Like I've been in builds of cars and you'd be like, wow, like we've solved this. Like this is just ship it. This is great. Right. And then literally, I feel like every time I've had that thought 30, exactly within a span of 30 seconds, something has happened. That's made me say, oh, dear God, we're nowhere near to solving this problem. I'm really glad we got to a safe stop. I'm really glad that something else happened. And and I guess... Is that, that real that, world or, or like crash course or course testing? Real world. I mean, the the thing that's... It's interesting you bring up the difference between track and... and, and, and Sorry, and track. Real, yeah. yeah, in real world testing. But like, I would say even like a couple of years ago, I even think I said it on the podcast, there, there was no autonomous car that I would fall asleep on even on the track. Mm. And I think that's actually changed a little bit. Yeah, that was um, in our conversation with Jake. Yeah, but I think uh, I think now that's changed. Now the question is, there's still no car I would fall asleep in, in the real world, and I, because of this long tail problem, there's weird things that happen, and, and how do you deal with them? And look, the company's named Edge Case. How do you deal with edge cases, Mike? How is how does yeah. that fall? Because you know I think we can all validate within standard deviations, right? So even two standard deviations, but how do you get to like really high sigma events? Right. Right. So part of this is, is the simulation question that we talked about. How realistic is it? And also, are you simulating the right kind of loads? We, we didn't touch on that claim, but that's an important one too. So part of how we get at how we're testing the right loads is, is heuristic because you want to get out in front of some of these problems. You don't want to have to sense them all on the road and then fix them and then push a new version out. You want to get to those issues before, before that. And so this is where the idea of robustness testing comes in. We have a product called Hologram, which does essentially fuzz testing, sometimes literally fuzz testing on the perception algorithms we were talking about a minute ago. And we're less focused on realistic triggering conditions. And we're more focused on helping to understand what kind of effects can cause a problem so that a human can extrapolate and say, oh, we had this, there's this one example of this, um, it, it was an open source object detector. I, I forget which, which model it was, but it was a model we were testing and we realized, thanks to hologram, that the detection performance went down when the pedestrian was standing next to some kind of vertical linear object, like a street light or something. And it was some kind of edge detection or part detection or whatever that was messed up. But hologram would take video and then, and then fuzz it these ways. And we'd keep finding all these problems around those street lights. And and you go in and you look at that in, in, in detail and you say, hey, we have a problem. So that kind of accelerated light testing, robustness testing, whatever you want to call it, is a really, really important aspect of this. Uh, when you get into, and to some extent, I guess, the getting to a minimal risk condition will also bail you out of some of those problems too. You have to know that you need to get into a minimal risk condition. So this kind of becomes the version of the question that's still hard. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I didn't actually think about it that way. I always thought, okay, well, you know, if you got into a minimal risk condition, as long as you're able to do that, you should be fine. But yeah, you're right. You have to trigger it. Yep. And the a lot of is, the problems you, you see that keep you from trusting it enough to sleep in it are situations where the automation is just operating blindly on as if nothing's wrong when the world is actually on fire. And so we could I only guess... all, all uh, operate like that. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> we'd be blissfully joking, <laughs> joking. Exactly. No, no, no. You know, like uh, Mike, we could have you on forever, I feel like, and we would never, you know, and I'm sure we'll have you back at some point, but we have a tradition on techonomics here and it's called the hot take. And Jake, I don't know, we, we flipped a coin. W which way did it come up to, to give him the hot take? Was it you or me? Oh, uh, let's go with, I'll take it. I'll take him giving him the hot take. Okay. So the hot yeah. take is just off the cuff answer. No one ever gives an off the cuff answer. All of our guests are too thoughtful. So don't, don't feel like you, uh, you have to, you have to actually answer off the cuff. We, we, we've always been trying to see if somebody would, no one has to date, but Jake, Jake, <laughs> go ahead. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. On the topic of safety and autonomous vehicles, uh, there's a few large players in, in the space that, that I see flowing through the news. And one is Tesla. And they've had the, hey, how do I move from three to four to five? And an introduction of products based on that. So we have full self-driving and then their enhanced autopilot. And since then, they've they basically rolled back the FSD, the full self-driving, based on regulatory scrutiny and have reintroduced that enhanced autopilot. What is your take on that, that shift? And what does that represent for the safety standards of, of the market? Well, I mean, I think it's, it, it's important to, to stress test some of the standards themselves, like even looking at we talked at the outset about the definitions between levels one, two, three, four, and whatnot. There's a lot of uncertainty or lack of clarity 
around there and, and, and how some of these functions get labeled. And so I think what we're seeing in these kind of real world examples is regulators, other stakeholders, manufacturers have to make some decisions here. And I'm glad it's being sorted out. It's, it's always a little bit messy at, at the start. Yeah. And how does the, how does some of the stuff that edge case research is doing play into that, that maybe a higher order regulatory conversation? Actually. Yeah. So sorry to bring this up in the hot take section, but this is no, where the next, right. and it, this is where the next and the, uh, and the future uses of safety cases come in. So I'll be, Perfect. I'll be real brief so that I don't dive in too far. The next thing, right, that you can do with a safety case is once there's enough evidence in place, then you can start to make risk assessments with it. You can start to say, how ready is this system to be in operation? And uh, again, without getting into too much detail, you can understand how an insurance company would be interested in that capability when it underwrites, right? So instead of a questionnaire, you know, yeah. hey, you know, what are you doing? Yeah. You do a safety case assessment. And then just to, I, I'd be happy to talk about that, but just to get back to your question about what, regulator, what regulators are doing, even if you don't have a, a mandate that you use UL 4600 or whatever, Looking at a safety case is actually a really good way for a regulator or some kind of stakeholder to, to understand how mature the technology is. That's the purpose of a safety case. So that could be the future is that this starts to be a way that we do things like assess readiness or assess what went wrong or all these kinds of things that a regulatory body might want to do. I was half expecting the answer to be, we have a fourth product, legislate it right. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, one, cool, one thing that's cool about our approach is be, a lot of people have, and certainly a lot of our customers have very proprietary safety cases. You, you've seen some frameworks that have been released, like Uber, ATG released theirs. We, we helped them with that. And now Aurora is using most of that same approach. But, but a lot of the customers are keeping everything under wraps. Our safety case framework, we can talk about it publicly. And in fact, that's been that's been really exciting for some of these potential regulatory agencies because they're used to getting stonewalled, you know, mm -hmm. when when they ask questions and we're like, hey, here's the way to do it. We'd be happy to we'd be happy if you started doing it. Yeah, there's there's so many conversations that are still yet to be had, especially on the regulatory front. And if you look at even like state to state regulations, they're so they vary so widely. Yeah. And there's just there's just so much so much space to go in this race. And uh, I'm glad that you have to think about it and not me on a daily basis. <laughs> thanks, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for thanks for making time. And I'm sure we'll talk again as this space evolves. Yeah, thanks, guys. This uh, this was a really uh, interesting conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity. Hey, everyone. Arun and I are extremely grateful to have you as a Technomics listener. As a reminder, the views expressed in the content of this podcast or anything linked in the newsletter, website, posts, or posted in social media or other platforms are that of our own and are not the views of any person, company, entity, or even any related affiliates. The content is not directed to any investors or even potential investors. It does not constitute an offer to sell or is a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. It may not be used or relied upon in evaluating the merits of any investment. Thank you.